0: And we're live. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, tuning in from around the world. This is your host, Steve Zekas, the Sinatra Suave host of the one and only Dominate the Deal podcast. Today's guest is a great friend of mine, Trevor Lorbeer. He is a badass entrepreneur, gives massive value towards other people. He has systemized a... Really, uh, he streamlined a process to help you stay disciplined and to really optimize your day. Uh, He created it in the form of an app called Daily Optimizer. He has a brand and a blog called Fast Fedora. So feel free to subscribe to that and hear more about the value that he gives to his people each and every day. In addition, he's the CEO and co founder of Lab Escape. So I am super excited to have him on. I know he's got a great message and you know, really powerful story into the success that he's had up to this point. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to our guest, Trevor. Thank you for hopping on, there. Thank you so much, Steve. Um,
1: one just quick clarification is that uh, Lab Escape is a company I sold four years ago. So okay. I actually no longer own Lab Escape anymore. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, but we can also talk about how to sell a company.
0: So Fair enough, fair enough. But, you know, thank you for the minor correction there. I, I apologize for that but doesn't,
1: doesn't hurt to like say, Hey, let's talk about my old company.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. But in that regard, you know, just tell me a little bit about with everything going on in the world, you know, like where you're at right now, you know, in terms of like your headspace, you know, your mentality, you know, how have you been staying positive, you know, throughout this whole like pandemic that's happened and you know, like what are you doing to stay sharp?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, um, a challenge for many people. Um, I have the advantage that I have worked from home for about 20 years on and off. Um, you know, Sometimes I've had offices and I've gone in the offices, but um, uh, Lab Escape was a mostly remote company um, and I've mostly done remote stuff. So um, I think that makes it easier for me than people who are just new to working at home and really haven't established their rhythm and established their boundaries between their home life and their work life. For me, that has been easier, um, but certainly it's been a challenge anyway. Because you don't have the same um, release relief valves in your life. Like you don't get to go out and like play sports or like go and hang out with friends or all the other things that you might do to kind of like relax and like reset your body. You know, you're just stuck at home, and that's a, uh, definitely a more difficult uh, position to be in.
0: That's true. That's true. Man. And I feel like we almost we're at a point now where we almost have to adapt and we have to explore passions and whatnot, just because it's like we almost took it for granted. Like, oh, there's always going to be work. And then, you know, we can kind of steer it from there. But you bring up a really good point where it's just like now that we are at home, the people that are really smart and are going to thrive, I feel like they're going to explore different skills to get better at as well as passions as well.
1: Exactly. I, I think now you'll see two different people come out of this. It's the people who see this as an opportunity and who then leverage that opportunity to, like you said, either learn a new skill, start a new business, grow in some way. I've heard many people talk about this is a great time to shed things that they didn't want in their lives whether that's old habits, old activities, sometimes it's old relationships. It's a great reset time to kind of reset and kind of think, what are we going to do forward? There's other people who are using it more just as a, um, let me just go on Netflix and binge watch and I'm using it like a sick day sort of thing. And then they're just going to resume their life as it was when it ends. And I think those people are missing that opportunity. I think it's a, it's a great opportunity to use this right now yep. to.
0: Launch hundred percent it, it's crazy to think about we'll never experience something like this ever again let's hope not <laughs> yeah, no, I sound like I want to but it's crazy because it's like one of the excuses I hear from like a lot of people on like LinkedIn on Facebook who' are saying like you know hey I want to start like I want to start a business right but one of the common objections Trevor that i see is oh i don't have the time well covid pretty much called your bluff and just said hey now we're giving you two and a half three months worth of time what are you going to do with it exactly yeah exactly so my my question for you right you're you're a very systematic guy you're very structured in that regard so let's get right into it tell me a little bit about you know the daily optimizer you know What was the inspiration behind that? You know, how did you come up with, you know, this app, this whole like processes, this system, like let's get into that because I'm curious. So to be truthful, I actually don't remember how I came
1: up with the system because I've been doing the system now for around eight or 10 years. So it's been a long time. And at some point in time, I, and I came up with this unique way to create a daily schedule. And then, um, day optimizer has been my way to create an app version of that but the um just to explain to your listeners what the system is um which can be done on paper and i did this for years on paper um with two index cards i would first write down everything i needed to do today so to create a daily to-do list we also often have tons of regular to-do lists um and Uh, I I have, you know, I've used different uh, uh, task management programs in the past and I have used paper and all that. But every day I would sit down and say, okay, out of all those things, what am I planning to do today? Write that down. Think, is there anything else I'm missing? Write all that down. In there, I'm including not just tasks, but appointments I have in the day and activities. So things like eating lunch, exercise, you know, things that I don't track in my task management system. And then I go through and I I look down that list and next to each one, I write down um, the amount of time I want to spend on that activity um, or how long I think it's going to take today Um, with things like, with things like, you know, lunch and, and, and exercise and stuff like that. That's just going to be okay. I kind of, I do this every day. I have a good feel for how long it takes. It takes me about half an hour to prepare and eat my lunch. Okay. Um, For other things that are multi-day projects, then I'm looking at less, how long, less task estimation, how long is it going to take, more what do I want to spend today? So maybe I have two or three different things I need to get done today, so I can only spend you know, an hour, hour and a half on this thing. So I schedule those in kind of 15 minute blocks because that's a nice chunk of time that like, you know, you're not really building it to follow exactly. And so that gives you like kind of a little buffer. If I do something a little bit faster, then it gives me time to do something a little bit slower. And so now I have everything like scheduled out and then I go and I've got my other index card, which is blank at this point. And how I used to do it um, because when you're doing an index card, it's a little bit harder is I, I would then write like 9am. Right. And then I go and look at my list, pick the, the, the item I want to at 9am off the other card and then write it in. And then I add in my head, okay, like at 9am, it's an hour and a half task. Okay. Next task is at 1030. So then I write 1030 go grab the next item and then just schedule out my day from there. Um, and now what I've done is made the, made that process a, a lot easier because you're not doing all the writing. You can just click, click, click and you can kind of scheduling out my day. Sometimes I schedule in the afternoon or other things, um, which is trickier when you're doing with the index cards, but, but that's the basic methodology. And like I said, I don't remember exactly how I created it, but I've been doing it for years and the days I do it, I am far more productive than the
0: nose. 100%. You you have your routines, your systems. I can relate to that. Every day I wake up, right? I, I do meditative breathing. Then I do, you know, affirmations while I'm working out, just something simple, nothing like, I'm not trying to, you know, say deadlift, you know, a thousand pounds or something like that in the morning, but it's, It's something, you know, some calisthenics and stretching just to get my body, you know, moving. And I feel like the days that I don't do that, like you said, it feels so empty. You're like, whoa, like I'm really missing something here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you're using that in in, in a good way. There's um, a lot of people who recommend, and I'm actually not this type of person. Like I I am structured, but I'm also chaotic. Right. So like, I have a hard time having a morning routine. I'm not routine focused. I schedule my day because by scheduling myself, I'm able to make sure everything gets done because I'm not good at following daily habits or routines that happen at the same time every day. Um, So you're actually doing really good with that because that's an important thing. But then the other thing that you're doing there um, by doing like a physical activity in the morning is you're you're doing a jumpstart, right? You're actually jumpstarting to then be more productive during the day. Because when you start doing, like, especially the, the calisthenics and the, where you're getting your heart rate up, you are uh, that will increase your dopamine and that will give you more focus and more motivation. So, kind of like it, 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 it's a jump start. It's just like jump starting a car or something like that. It like, it, it like rockets you into your day. So, it's a great habit to have. Um, I unfortunately. Have, have struggled to, to have that habit myself. I tend to, because I'm a night owl, I'm very groggy in the morning and I'm a very slow um, starter in the morning. So I schedule a lot of my exercise in the afternoon. So that's why I, I have needed to be more structured in my day to match with the fact that I'm not good at doing that morning routine.
0: Fair enough. So my, my question to you then, just to kind of build off that, you know, you mentioned that you are night owl, right? Some people are just morning people. Others are night owl. That's that's completely fine. Does your schedule change because of that, or does a lot of it have to do with, say, the work that you do? Like, what really goes into building an ideal structure for each person? Because you probably don't want to cookie cut everybody, because not everybody's the same. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think there's. Um... So two ways to answer that. Uh, um, uh, first, we have our circadian rhythms, right? And that's where, where our energy peaks, different types of energy peak throughout the day. Um, so there's the book, When. Um, I forget the author. It's Daniel Pink or uh, Dan Heath, and I forget which one. Um, but um, that talks a lot about the research around circadian rhythms and um, what he calls. There's, um, he calls them larks. Night owls and midbirds, or something like that. Basically, there's three day types of people. Most people tend to be like, uh, um, like kind of in the middle, and then you've got the early birds, and then you've got the night owls. And um, we go through our day in different ways, how our energy peaks. So the the early birds, their focus peaks earlier in the morning. Like, I think it's like an hour or two after waking. You'd have to read the book, the exact cycle in there. Um, and and then, then around lunch, it, it kind of dips, and then they go through this uh, uh, trough, and then they come through a recovery phase. And so there's different activities that research has shown that are good to do during the, those cycle periods, right? So analytical activities that require focus, that require um, uh, precise answers are good to do during your peak period. So for an early bird, that's gonna be like earlier in the morning. Um, For the, I'm just gonna call them a mid bird. That's not the term he used, but it was something like that. Um, uh, Third bird, he called them third birds. For the third birds, um, it's gonna be kind of late morning, right? Um, And then for the night owls is actually, Our cycles are kind of in reverse. We're actually in the evening when all that happens. Um, But that's when your analytical activity works best. Your creative activity, you're coming up with new ideas. You're trying to think through your strategy. You're trying to think outside the box, do lateral thinking. That is actually better during your recovery phase. So if you are an early bird, you should not be doing a strategy in the morning. You should probably be doing your strategy work like later in the afternoon after you've gone through your trough and you've got some energy back, but now your brain is, I don't want to say fuzzy, but it's, it's, it's thinking more laterally. It's not thinking to toward a precise answer. And that allows you to see a lot more of the possibilities and really develop, you know, good strategies or anything you want to do creative, uh, creatively, um, you know, come brainstorming a new name for your business or something like that. Don't do that during your focus time because you're not going to be able to widen your zone of, of attention enough to kind of see all the possibilities there.
0: Does that make sense? So let's, let's say that um, my time to be precise and get the right answers would be a night owl, right? Let's so yeah, if you're
1: a night out, so if you're a night out, that's kind of reversed. In the morning is when you're kind of fuzzy and creative. And then like in, in the night is when you get this nice precision going on. And so a lot of like the, the real precise work, um, like I'll get a, 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 my, my, I'll pick up my steam around nine or 10 and I can get like super hyper focused then. And I can do some really like detailed work, focused work um, at that time. You know whereas in the morning it's better for me to sit down for me, mornings are better for strategy work because my brain's a little bit foggy I'm a little bit slow. my brain is thinking in different pattern like a um, uh, it, it's just not so focused so we can actually see all the possibilities and explore things that I couldn't explore if I was in a focus mode and very um, uh, tunnel vision, so by having that wider focus. It's better for me
0: in the morning to do strategy work. My question to you to follow up on that would be can people change? If you're, say, a third bird or if you're an early bird or you're a night owl, can you change that at any point? Or is it just once you're an early bird, that's it?
1: So the research does indicate it does change throughout our lives. Um, okay. So I believe. Um, uh, teenagers actually skew late. Um, so, so they're, li- they're more night birds. Um, and if you think about like a lot of teenagers would stay up late at night, you know, anyway, but it's like, they're also their their whole chemistry and their circadian rhythm is skewing late. Um, no matter where you are on that spectrum, like even if you're like a, like an early bird, rather than waking up at like four or 5am, like the really hardcore early birds, maybe you're working at waking up at six or 7am as you get older, that will skew a little bit back earlier. Um, And I've been told as you continue to get older, like into your sixties and seventies, you will become a more of an early bird. So there's, there is some um, changes that help over over your lifetime. I don't actually know whether you can change it consciously. I know like when I, to go back to lab escape, um, that was a very sales heavy business and I was selling into large enterprises And so the ideal time to make your sales calls is before 9 a.m. or after 5 p.m., right? Because you're trying to get executives on the phone. And so I just forced myself to get up really early and make those calls. And, you know, I did get into a routine where I was doing that and I was waking up. I don't, I wouldn't say I ever actually shifted my circadian rhythm that it felt comfortable to be in there, but it was manageable. It was definitely like, yes, I can do this, but it was, you know, not leveraging my natural um rhythms.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I granted, I, I definitely would have to take a look at that study. I would have to take a look at that book because it it's definitely interesting. I was reading something, um, I think I was reading an article the other day on like dreaming, right? Like the power of, like, lucid dreaming and being able to, like, hone in on that. I think um Paul McCartney from the Beatles, I read that apparently the song Yesterday, he literally thought of that song in a dream and he mm. memorized it. Like, that's crazy that, like, we're talking about, like, rhythm. Does Does that kind of, like, stem into that, like, creative process as well? Um...
1: I don't know how lucid, lucid dreaming, lucid dreaming definitely can stem into the creative process. Right. And like one of the things that I've read, like just doing a dream journal, like keeping a journal beside your bed. So you write down your dreams before you even get out of bed, before you move. So you don't disturb it. That will actually start triggering more lucid dreaming, um, or more, you'll remember your dreams more and then you can do lucid dreaming from there. Um, I've never, I've never actually been able to actually do lucid dreaming. I've been able to, to increase memories of my dream, but I can't actually realize I'm dreaming, unfortunately, because I can't fly in my dream. So that's really fun. Um, but the, on the use of sleep for creativity, I think that is definitely a key thing. So one of the things that um, I think really helps with creativity is uh, you load a problem in your brain and then you go do something else and let your brain work in the background to kind of solve the problem and come up with that. And that's where your brain is making these connections that like if, if it's sort of like if you try to focus too much on it, you can't see it. But if you just like let it go over into your periphery, suddenly you can see it and then bring it back into focus. And I feel that's how your brain works with so many creative problems. Um, and you know, I do a lot of programming development, Uh, lots of times, my girlfriend will sometimes laugh because I'll be there like, okay, um, I'm gonna go think about this problem and I go lie on the bed and take a nap. She's like, are you thinking about your problem or are you just napping? And the answer is both, right? It's like by going and saying, I'm gonna take a 10 minute nap, a 15 minute nap and just disconnect from the work. I, I refresh my body a little bit from the sleep But it also gives my brain the chance to kind of do that mixing that allows it to surface like solutions to the problem that I I didn't know I knew.
0: That's awesome. It's you're putting essentially. If if I had to recite it back to you, it's almost like you're putting your conscious mind at rest and you're letting your subconscious, which is the more powerful part of your mind and how it works to figure out the solution.
1: Exactly. And you'll, you'll find that a lot of people will say their, um, uh, most creative moments come from when they're not working. So it's when you're taking a shower when you're taking a walk, you know, doing something that you're not actually working. And there's a lot of research around the value of taking a break to increase your productivity or to especially in the creative professions right that is that helps surface um new ideas that really dramatically will alter you know um move the needle in ways that if you just stayed focused you wouldn't be able to see
0: i think google does that as well i don't i don't know how true this is i'd have to do more research on it but i heard that at google's headquarters all the people that work there. Apparently, they have like their own like dorm room. So like, obviously, they work, but then they have a time where they can like have lunch and then they could go take a nap. Yeah. So like, I I find that really fascinating. It's different, but as big as Google is, like I I see why they do. It, makes
1: sense. N- Napping is really powerful. If you are a good napper, there's some people who can't nap. Like, so I can, I can nap for, I can be out in like a minute or two and I can take a 10 minute nap um, or a 15 minute nap and then be back up and I'm like super refreshed and ready to go. Um, There's some people like they can't do that. Usually the recommendation is try not to shorten the nap then. Don't take a 20 minute nap. Once you get into 20, 30 minute, you start getting into the um, sleep fog stuff. So if you can just set the timer and you don't even need to go to sleep, just resting your eyes, resting your body, that kind of refreshes you. And there is um, research out there that shows that napping does kind of refresh your brain and make you more um, productive. And so, yeah, so you are seeing businesses like Google doing these kind of napping pods or whatnot to let their, their um, employees reset.
0: So my, my question would be for, for napping to really utilize that to, you know, enhance productivity become more efficient. Right. Do you recommend people who say aren't good nappers to, you know, do it sitting down instead of lying down? Um, I don't know um, how well
1: that would work. I mean, I would definitely try it. I would just experiment with different things. I can tell you a couple of different things to experiment with. So one of the, oh, I forget I forget who used to use this technique. So I think someone famous used to use the technique that they would hold their car keys in their hand and then, um, and then lie down on the couch. And then when the car, when their hand, when they were so asleep that the um, car keys fell to the floor, it would jingle and then wake them back up again. So that was their nap time it was until everything kind of like they totally went to sleep and then they got woken back up again. I will um, sometimes use. Um, this app on my iPhone is called brainwave and it uses binaural beats, which um, again, binaural beats don't work for everyone, but if they work for you, they're fantastic. Um, and you basically put on headphones and I've got a program called PowerNap. And what it does is through the binaural beats it will bring your brain down into a sleep state or into a, a more meditative state, not necessarily sleep. Um, and then it will like, leave me there for a duration and then wake me back up at the end. So um, it's, it's like a one or two minute, bringing me down. And then if I do a 10 minute nap, say it's a minute down, then I'm asleep for eight minutes and then it's a one minute back up. And that gives me super refresh naps. So for the people who aren't good nappers, I would definitely say explore binaural beats. Um, and again, on the iPhone, that one's called Brainwave, but there's a ton of different binaural beats out there. Um, I also use brain.fm for focus, and I know they also have a sleep mode. I haven't used them, um, but that might be another app to play
0: with. Fair enough. I think just in your words, can you just explain to You know, people nowadays, you know, there's so much technology, right? There's, you know, there's TV, there's Netflix, obviously, you know, there's laptops, cell phones, et cetera. Like we're all so focused on looking at a screen. It almost like dumbs us down. Like in your own words, it's important to enhance your brain and to train your brain to take care of it. But just in your eyes, your opinion, why is it so important being an entrepreneur? to really always be working on developing your brain? Um,
1: well, I mean, I think one of the things that, entrep- that entrepreneurs and other professions share this too, but not all professions share this, is that um, because it is a creative profession, because it's a knowledge-based profession, it's, it's the value comes from your brain. It's important to have that. And entrepreneurs have, this incredible, incredible leverage opportunity, right? An hour, you can ask like, okay, what is an hour of someone's time worth, right? And it's like, okay, well, if you are making shoes at a shoe factory and you can make, you know, I don't know, 10 shoes an hour, right? And so you're sh- sending the, uh, um, uh, like, the, the net result of that is that we can figure out after all the sales costs that, okay, 10 shoes, every shoe is attributed a dollar to you. So you'll worth $10 an hour or something. That's a bad example. But like, basically you can fairly accurately figure out what the worth of that time is from a market perspective, because you can't suddenly make a hundred shoes an hour or a thousand shoes an hour. If you are the person who is building the shoes on the factory floor. But if you are the entrepreneur who's coming up with the systems, who is inventing the equipment to do that, then you can, then you can do these leverage things. Like, you know, you can invent a new process. So like, think about like how long, um, to continue with the shoe example, how long a pair of shoes um, would take to make 500 years ago and then a hundred years ago. Right. I mean, like 500 years ago might've taken a week to create a pair of shoes or something. I actually don't know the, the time, but like, you know, a cobbler when a cobbler was working on a pair of shoes, you know, there's a lot of work to create a pair of shoes. Now we've got factories that can create these pair of shoes that can spit out, you know, dozens or hundreds in an hour. Um, that was because some entrepreneur came up with this new process, these new machines and figure out ways to leverage that. And so they can get these multiples that you can't do, um, in many other professions. And, and, and to be able to, to think of those multiples, you need to train your brain so you can manage your brain to create those
0: multiples. If that makes sense. hundred percent. I think you nailed it right on the head right there. Um, I wanted to ask you about entrepreneurs. We see a lot of successful high performance people, right? Like Elon Musk, you know, Bill Gates, you know, God rest his soul, Steve Jobs, Dan Pena, all these guys, right? And they all all seem to have this edge, this competitive edge almost. I feel like it starts from their habits. So like for, my question is twofold. What's your approach to habits And what are some of the habits that you do to help you prepare yourself to control your day?
1: Okay. Um, Yeah. So again, like my, I I think a good way of looking at habits, if you can make it work for you is to schedule a habit at the same time each day and just do it at that time. That is a good way to do it. Um, My days are not so I have a hard time doing that um i like more flexibility in my day so i focus on other techniques to make sure i maintain my habits Uh, so the two key things i do to maintain my habits uh, excuse me um the one habit i do do every day is i wake up and i schedule my day right before i used to do that on index cards now i use day optimizer to do that Um, but I schedule my day. So that is one habit that I do maintain. It's not a fixed time because my um, my uh, wake time varies. Um, but whenever I wake up, you know, within about an hour of waking up, I create a whole schedule for my day. And then in that schedule, I say, okay, this is when I'm going to go running. This is when I'm going to meditate. This is when I'm going to do all my different habits. Um, and I uh, – so that's the first thing I do. The second thing that works really well for my psychology, and again, I think nothing. There's no productivity hack that works for everyone. So you figure out what works for your psychology. Um, The one that works for me is the "Don't Break the Chain" the Jerry Seinfeld method, or the one that he popularized, which is, uh, in his in his view, is where you you put a big X on the calendar every single day that you do something, and your goal is to have an unbroken chain of X's. In the digital world, I use a day um, uh, website called Everyday App. It's actually an app on my phone. It comes up every time I open a new tab in Chrome. It shows me where I am for all my habits in the day Um, as a reminder, hey, have you done your habits? Um, So I've got a lot of like ways to remind me to do my habits, both by scheduling and by saying like, let me make sure I don't break the chain and then kind of to create that momentum um so that's the the second thing um the third thing actually i'll just throw in there which is i'll relate to habits as well which is a technique that can be useful for people is um the uh red light yellow light green light version of 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 habits and i think too often what people do is they say especially if you're if you're in the don't break the chain mode right um if that works for you once you broke the chain it's really hard you're there like oh i just i lost it never mind you know or like or my day is so stressful i'm just gonna like give up completely right so there's this idea of setting what is your ideal way to make your habit work and your minimal way so I call that my green light and my yellow light. So for instance, um, uh, my green light uh, might be go for a 30 minute run, right? My yellow light would be go for a 10 minute run or go for a 10 minute walk. Right. So like, cause this my habit. There's my cardio habit. Um, so ideally every day I'm just going for a 30 minute run, but sometimes days, Just happen and you're just like i just can't do it right well if you can at least do your minimum you cannot break the chain so you're like okay i'm gonna now i'm gonna do my yellow light and i haven't i haven't hit the red light i haven't stopped i haven't stopped my momentum i've slowed my momentum and you don't want to like hit yellow too many days in a row because then you might hit your red light um but if you if you go through a yellow light and then you go back to green lights great so that's a nice technique to use to maintain habits and you can do that also even if you are scheduling your habits like at the same time every day as well um so those are three different techniques to use related to habits as far as my habits um i have uh, a couple different i think of habits in a couple different categories so i have um uh, my foundational or renewal habits so those are going to be um, uh, various forms of exercise so i've got a cardio uh, um, form. I do strength training and then I'll do stretching. Um, so stretching is usually yoga. Um, strength training is going to be Pilates or like I've got a whole body weight, um, uh, strength training routine I do. Um, and then cardio is going to be, you know, either a walk, walk or run. Um, also in there is going to be, uh, meditation. So I try to meditate a minimum of five minutes a day, ideally 10 or 15. And then I've got my, um, health habits, like, right. Just making sure I take my vitamins every day. Um, I've got, I do intermittent fasting. So, um, on the days I'm doing intermittent fasting, um, that's part of my habit. Um, and I'm also trying to reduce my meat consumption. So I actually have a habit called, uh, uh meatless days, meatless, meatless meals days. Um, so I'll track when I'm doing those. And then finally I've got my, um, uh, improvement or I'll just call it improvement habits, right? So, um, some of those are personal. So, um, uh, one of my things I'm doing right now is I'm learning German. So I've got a learn German habit that happens every day. Uh, some of them are also, um, related to the business. Uh, and these can vary depending upon where I am in the business cycle. So earlier this year I had a publish every day habit, right? So every day I had to publish something, a blog post, a uh, a tweet a um a newsletter a product release something i had to put out into the world for others to consume um and so just made that my habit um so yeah those are a couple different habits that i do
0: how how beneficial has intermittent fasting been for you because i hear a lot of people do it a lot of athletes a lot of you know like Entrepreneur CEOs, and they feel like they just have this energy. Like, just tell me about like how it's benefited you.
1: Um, I'm using it mostly around um, weight control. So okay. I, so I, I, I've done a couple different things. So I've when I've done keto, um, when I started doing keto, I had the whole keto flu. So I definitely did not get energy. Um, but then after that I did start getting yeah, I'd wake up, I wouldn't have any problem doing any energy or anything like that. Um, and that was really nice. Um I found over time it was hard to stick to the keto diet just because it is a fairly strict diet. And if you're going out on networking meetings or it just became a little bit too strict. Um I like the intermittent fasting because it's kind of like still allows you to do some more calorie control, still allows your body and your digestive system to get the rest. Um, I do believe it still ties into how we evolved. I don't think on the Savannah we were eating three meals a day. I do think it was more like, okay, we eat a meal and we may not eat a meal for another, you know, 24 hours or something or whatever. Um, So our body, how we evolved or evolved to not have constant food. Um, uh, And and it's also, you know, there's a lot of um, calorie restriction related to, aging slower, life extension, stuff like that. So I do think intermittent fasting can be used for that right now. I'm actually, um, doing a fairly extreme version because of COVID-19. Um, I gained about 10 pounds sitting around the house. Um, and so I've switched over. I'm doing an actually a 22-2 intermittent fasting where I eat for two hours in the day. Um, so basically it means I eat one, one big meal a day. Um, and then, then that sustains me. I, I do allow coffee and wine outside this period, so I'm not having zero calories out there. But in coffee, I only use um, cream, so it's pure fat, so no carbohydrates in there, like no 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 milk or half and half. It's actually heavy cream, which is just pure fat, so it keeps you in the the fasting mode. Um, and then you know, wine is you know my little indulgence outside of that. Um, but that I, I have seen fantastic results from that so far on. Losing some of my COVID weight. so
0: Fantastically. You look great, man. You look great. How long have you, I'm just curious. How long did you just pick up intermittent fasting for the pandemic or were you doing it like for a couple of years now?
1: I, um, so in my twenties, I, I experimented with, um, single day fasting. I used, I remember I used to fast every Thursday. And just to give my, my digestive system a rest. And I remember that was really helpful. And I don't actually remember why I stopped it. Um, but no, I picked up intermittent fasting, um, I guess, a year or two ago. And I, I can't remember if it was directly tied to, uh, my doctor had recommended I go on a keto diet because I needed to kind of lose my weight and reduce some of my cholesterol numbers. Ironically enough, when you go on keto, your cholesterol will actually go up because you're re- burning all this fat for this period until it, um, stabilizes. So, um, you can't just immediately judge those numbers. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I don't remember if it was uh, keto or I've also done the slow carb diet from Tim Ferriss and some other things around that. Um, but yeah, I've been doing it a while, so it wasn't unfamiliar to me. And normally I do a, um, uh, usually it's like an eight hour ED period, six to eight hour. So I'm, um, you know, and then I'm usually doing that every day. Um, so, I, like often, what I'll do is I'll eat from noon until six, for instance, or noon until eight. That would be my eating period.
0: Okay. Okay, I'll I'll definitely have to give it a try, for sure. But I wanted to wanted to ask you, since you know we're not nutritionists, obviously, I wanted to hone back in on you know the habits and you really honed in on something called you know what was the red light it the red yellow green light method for habits do you apply that also for say if you have like a bad habit you're trying to kick or like an addiction as well um yeah i think so like
1: so i'll often develop um rules around that and and I haven't thought of it in the same terms of the uh, red, yellow, green light, right? Because you kind of really want them all to be red lights, but it's more like different release, release valves, right? Okay. So you can have like, okay, like, um, like I'm completely unrestricted in my habit. I'm just doing like nothing about it. And then you can like scale back and say, okay, like how can I put some restriction on the habit? but not go completely cold turkey, or like remove the habit. And then you can even think, well, okay, how can I restrict that even more? So, I mean, I've sometimes done that um, uh, with my eating. Like I can, at times in my life, I've been addicted to sugar. I think we all have, right? And so like you can get into these things of, okay, like, well, I can have one treat a day. Okay, now I can have one treat a week. Or, you know, um, uh, developing these different rules that help with, like I used to smoke Uh, Clove cigarettes and I remember at some point in time, I got down to saying like, I forget what my initial rules were, but my final rule was I could smoke three cloves a year. Um, Which is hardly anything. It's like basically not smoking. Um, And the interesting thing when you approach, I think, bad habits from that perspective is if you set like a low threshold, that's not a zero threshold it becomes a de facto zero threshold. Right. So also I don't, I, I, years ago I said, okay, I want to stop eating fast food. So again, I, I've probably stepped it down, but like my final rule was I'm allowed to go out and eat fast food once a year. And I still have that rule. And once a year I go and I go to McDonald's or I go to five guys or something like that, get a big, huge, greasy hamburger, like all, like all, everything, whatever, like, and I just indulge in it. Like, it's my thing. Once a year, I get to do that. Uh, Cause I've got a rule. H- have I quit fast food? No, but like it's effectively the same thing, you know? And so psychologically I don't like there's that sometimes there's this, we ho- we want to hold on to the bad habit and we don't want to like let it go. But if you just bring it down to this level where it's almost the same thing as letting it go, you don't have to let your brain go through that resistance process. Because your brain says, I still get to indulge. I still get that. And then sometimes it just disappears, right? So like, yeah, I've not smoked cloves for like five or 10 years now, at least. Like, might've even been longer. Um, I, I remember like for years, I, I would keep a, um, I had this uh, pack of cloves in my car. I hid it underneath my, uh, the passenger seat, my car. Just for like the day, I want to do it because I didn't want the. There was also the psychology of like, okay, if I didn't have access to it, I'd want it more. And the fact that it was in my car and I'd said that I could have three a year, that then diminished my desire to go and get it. And then I never did. Right. And now, like, you know, at some point in time, I just threw them out because they went bad. But, um, uh, but again, I was playing that psychological game because I never actually quit. I just reduced down to a point where I'd almost essentially quit, and I let I, I, I kind of subverted my brain's defense mechanisms around trying to hold on to the bad habit. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting take on it. I, like, would you you still apply that methodology for say, like really like? really bad habits, like hardcore, not just like cigarettes or like smoking in general, but I'm talking like hardcore drugs or like pornography or alcohol. Like, do you think that would still work?
1: I am not really good with that. Um, I would say the, so all, one, I would say the the person who has done the most research I know of around habits and has the most detail is James Clear, who wrote a book, Atomic Habits. So if someone wants to go deep in the habit thing, buy that book, read that book, or I think it's JamesClear.com. He's got a new, weekly newsletter that's all about habits. Um and he is like I, a um, I, am, I, just, I, I just don't know, right? I don't I don't uh, I feel blessed. I've never had a hardcore addiction. Um I mean I've definitely struggled with different things, but I also have had friends who have been addicted to heroin, who have been hardcore alcoholics. Um, But my struggle can't compare to theirs. Like I can't imagine what theirs is like. Um, So yeah, I I, I can't tell you what would solve it because I've not been there.
0: Fair enough. Thank you for your honesty in that regard. I wanted to harp back on Um, your one business venture that you corrected me on when I introduced you on, on the deal here, um, lab escape. So like, what was for you, what was the inspiration behind that? You know, tell me about like that journey, like some of the things you really learned and the lessons you learned that you now apply in your life.
1: Uh,
0: wow. So that was a long
1: journey. I, um, I own that company for way too long. Um, I think, um, so it, it it wound up being an enterprise software company. Um, I definitely didn't intend that at the beginning. Um, We made this um, data visualization called a heat map or a tree map. um, And then came up with some innovations around it. When we started, which was back in 2003, there were almost no commercial implementations of this type of visualization. And it's a very powerful visualization. It lets you see up to 100,000 data elements on a single screen and, and extra- visually analyze that data in ways that few other visualizations can especially when you're looking at portfolio-type visualizations, whether well, that's a portfolio of stocks, a portfolio of projects, you know, or other types of portfolios, portfolio of products. And um, so very quickly discovered that the, the people who are most interested in this were the really large companies, the Fortune 500s, Global 2000s. Um, so we wound up selling to those companies, and it wound up being a very sales-heavy company. Um, business from a business model perspective. Uh, Cause when you're, when you're selling to those companies, it's not like give me your credit card. We'll just run a 30 day sale. Um, so learning um, how to do sales was an incredible journey for me. Right. I am basically grew up a geek introvert, did a lot of practice and learn how to like improve my networking and talk to people better and all that. I am not a salesperson, right? Yeah, I had to sell for my company. I had to figure that out. Um, and oftentimes when you look at a discipline that we don't know, it's like, it, it feels impossible first. Um, you talk to people and they'll tell you how they should do it and you don't know the landscape. So you don't realize that what they're telling you is completely wrong for your situation. Um, There's a lot of people who haven't explored their discipline. So they have a very narrow view of their discipline and they usually think anyone who says this will work for anything, don't believe them and then start figuring out, okay, where are the situations where that doesn't work? Right? So the, the type of sales that say a used car salesman does or a door to door encyclopedia person or um any sort of like quick transactional sale does is very different than the type of sale when you're selling software to a large enterprise right um And back when I started, there were like two main camps around that was the transactional sales, which were the ones that I could complete, you could complete within like 30 days, right? You could even like just call cold cold calls on the phone um, and, you know, close those deals right away, right? Then there's relationship-driven deals where you develop a relationship, it's a lot more consultative. The hardcore ones are like the government deals that take 12 months or more to close, totally different approach, you use different sales techniques, you use, everything is different about that process. There might be a a couple things that you can use between the two, Um, but what I, in the beginning, I would find people who were familiar with the transactional approach, and it turned out that the software we sold at the price point we sold it, was doing this hybrid approach, and it was just becoming possible through um, online video meetings at that time, we were doing go-to meeting to do these hybrid approaches. Um, but like the, there were a lot of transactional salespeople who were giving me these device, or I had relationship salespeople giving me a device, and none of it would fit. So finding the right thing, so discovering sales methodologies like um, solution selling, spin selling, the complex uh, um, uh, consultative selling, you know, um, those things were key to kind of unlocking how to do sales for me and realizing, Oh yeah, that people had figured this out and they had figured it out for my problem set. Right. And so if you go to a person who, um, like if you go talk to a car salesperson, right? Like, Oh, tell me about spin selling or tell me about solution. They probably don't know anything about those methodologies unless they are one of those people who've explored other things. Those are not, methodologies that you use to sell a car those are the methodologies you use when your sales cycle is three six twelve months and it's a complex product that's going to get configured it's going to be you know minimum five figure six or seven figure deal you know like those are the methodologies you use for that if you're selling a car, you're using completely other different methodologies. And I actually don't know those because I didn't, I wound up learning enough to know what paths I needed to go down. Um, so, yeah, the, to go back to your question, one of the key things I learned is in any discipline, there are a lot of different subdisciplines that apply to different contexts. So learning what the different subdisciplines are and what context they apply to is really important. Even if you don't wind up learning the discipline itself, because like say you're a CEO and you want to um, you want to hire people for that, it's important to know those distinctions so you know who to hire. Don't hire a marketing person. Marketing is a really broad discipline. It has like 20 or 30 different sub you know, that person might be really good at paid ads. They might be good at PR. They might, you know, might be good at branding. There's copywriters. There's all sorts of things. There's a lot of marketing consultants out there. And a lot of them will will use the term marketing consultant because they know one or two disciplines in there and think that is marketing. But marketing is an incredibly broad discipline. So again, like recognize that there's are sub-disciplines, learn them and learn what when it each is appropriate to use. Does that help?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm kind of thinking of it now, right? Like sales, you mentioned there's so many ways to sell There's spin selling solution, selling, you know, business, to business, cold calling, you know, snail mail, right? High end, high end deals. I almost feel like, and those are the sub disciplines, if you will, it's kind of like martial arts, right? Oh, well, I want to be a good martial artist. Well, that depends it's like what do you want to be good at do you want to be good at defending from knives there's like martial arts specifically for knives there's yeah. ones for just street fighting there's bare knuckle fighting there's boxing there's um, like Krav Maga is like Israeli fighting style yeah. so it's yeah. like how did okay I guess my question is for a business professional right for an entrepreneur how does one know what quote unquote subdiscipline is right for their business um
1: so i think education is useful first it's to kind of learning um uh the um the different patterns that match different businesses. A great book for that is, I'm going to butcher his last name, Alex Osterwalder, um, his business model canvas. And he also has a value proposition canvas. Those are great because what he's done is extracted the concept of a business model and put it into a kind of diagram where we can start talking about the business models and how, um, how do I serve my customers? What are my key resources? Um, how do I make money? All those sort of things. And then what you can do is say like, um, what are other businesses that have similar business models to me? And so my first step if, if I was already running a business would be to do that and then say like, okay, let me go talk to those other people and f- like learn how they see the landscape, right? Cause that would be like, you know, like, if I'm selling enterprise sales, let me talk to other enterprise salespeople. I right away find out, oh, they're using solution selling. You know, If I just go and talk to other entrepreneurs in general, that may not help me. Um, the value of something like Business Model Canvas is that you can actually find that there are business models, the same business models in very different industries. So you can, you can actually go outside of your industry to innovate and bring that those business models and ideas back into your industry to gain a competitive advantage. Um, but it can also just give you that overview.
0: So know, know your market, understand your competition and based off those two things, the business model that you have, you'll be able to tailor it based on how well your competition is. doing.
1: No. So it's not about your competition. Um, you can look at your competition if you want to, um, so again I guess there there's two things like um, if you already have the business like learn to analyze your business and how it operates. Um, there are people who study the patterns of business, and there's now a whole discipline around business I mean you can go get like these um Entrepreneurial MBA programs and stuff like that, but also like you know, I, I think the first thing I would start with is Business Model Canvas, which is an excellent book that gives you the idea that there's these building blocks of how to build a business. Um, and yes, like you can even like model out your competition to see how your competition is, but oftentimes you your business model might be different from your your competition, which is what gives you that competitive advantage.
0: Um, fair enough, fair don't enough.
1: necessarily want to rely on them. And um, there are certain structural things that come to the market, but a lot of the things, a lot of the ways people innovate might be targeting the same market with a new business model. Take Uber versus taxis, right? Same service, very different business models. And we could go through exactly how those business models different, but Uber didn't innovate in the market perspective They didn't look at their competition, which were taxis. They actually innovated on the business model side. And then there were a bunch of other people who looked at the Uber business model of, okay, I've got an app on my phone that knows where you are. Everyone has smartphones now. What can I build using that type of business model where then I'm using outside contractors to actually do fulfill all the services? And then you come up with something like Instacart. Right, for grocery shopping, or like so many other apps out there that have, have basically taken that same model and just transformed it into a different industry or a different problem set. Now, if you're starting from scratch, what I would do is I would still go and learn um, business model canvas and value proposition canvas, but then what I would do is I would start trying to document other people's businesses and maybe go and interview different um, entrepreneurs. Take them out to lunch, reach out on LinkedIn or at networking events and say, hey, can I take you out to lunch? I want to learn about your business and focus on like trying to hear what their business model is rather than just talking to them about like, hey, what do you do? Blah, blah, blah. Kind of understand what are the key leverage points of their business model. And if you have that foundation of something like business model canvas, you can then document that. I did this years ago. I was at, uh, um, for, uh, right after i learned business model canvas, I went to a startup weekend and I took all the startups that presented and I just documented the business models as they were going along. Um, Cause it was a good practice to kind of learn how to use the canvas and also then kind of see what those different pieces are. And then once you have that, you can then say, okay, what. You use a concierge onboarding methodology, right? Tell me how you do that. What are the systems you do for that? What are the processes? What's the software you use? So for instance, um, uh, HubSpot is a great example in the in the software space, marketing space. They are now a public company. Um, but they do, they do concierge onboarding. So they'd have like business development, um, like salespeople who just call up you know, answer a couple of questions, set appointments, you know, then you, then you meet with the actual salesperson and they've got this whole process going on here, but it's a, um, it's a high touch, but not a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, probably a medium touch. It's not super high touch because it's not like a field sales thing where the salesperson's going to drive into your city, take you out to dinner. We're going to talk about it. You know, they're just not charging enough for that. Um, so they developed, Um, many other people did as well, this whole concept of concierge onboarding where I'm holding your hand but I'm not like, you know, I'm not doing it all for you. Right. And so there's specific software they use, specific processes, specific like uh, business structures like you can look at one of those sales teams and see like oh i've got a bdr i have business development uh, a rep here i've got this a sales development rep here and like how the different handoffs work versus like an enterprise salesperson uh, a business in the in the software world i might have a um a sales engineer and a sales person i've got a different composition of my team and how i build and scale that organization is very different so um yeah studying that as a discipline especially if you're an early entrepreneur is extremely valuable because that is how you avoid painful lessons going down on like like going down and trying something and not discovering it until you're like you know 6 months a year down the road you know you can actually step back and go okay you'll still make mistakes still horrible mistakes sometimes but it, um, it gives you much more context for that.
0: There's a lot that goes, obviously, into, into being an entrepreneur, right? And especially with a business model, Canvas. So my, my question then is, how, how do you advise people when you coach people, when you consult with people, with entrepreneurs? How do you advise them you know, to get started when perhaps maybe they don't know how? like walk me through that process and like how you get them to open up about their skills and their passions.
1: So this is one where there's so many different ways to do it. It kind of depends upon the entrepreneur. So you'll try different doors and then see which one gets opened. Um, So a couple different things that I will um, either tell the person to explore or we'll go through some dialogue and ask them. Um, One is I'm a big believer in the lean startup methodology Um, and anyone who's uh, what that methodology allows you to do is very cheaply test your idea and go through this build, test, learn cycle very rapidly to kind of iterate um, to build a company based on like actual um, market demand um, or or market demand that you discover. there is, so that's a great methodology. I always tell people to actually read the book and read the whole book because a lot of the terms, the way they are used now, things like minimal viable product, pivoting and all that are not necessarily used correctly. So the words have widened in their definition. Um, so going back to the original book is, a, is I think, key. Um, the second thing is related to there's lots of um, ways to identify what your key strengths are. So there's strength, strengths finder is a good test. I think it's someone was mentioning the other day, the DISC I S C is a, a personality test that can kind of help you identify um, what your key strengths are. Introspection, I think is key, knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at. Um, so I, I, Depending upon where they are on their journey, I'd ask them like, well, you know, well, what are you good at? Like, what are what are your uh, nowadays the popular thing is to ask, what's your superpower? Um, but what are you know, what are the you know, two or three things that like you really excel at? Um, and then yeah, and then from idea creation, doing the lean startup stuff, um, then I might pull in some other things. There's uh, jobs to be done methodology, which is excellent for learning how people buy stuff. Um, we could go through. Um, the different um, stages of product awareness. And I would kind of gauge based upon where they are.
0: What is your favorite superpower?
1: (laughs) So my superpower is um, uh, being able to take a blank canvas and, and, or uh, basically to create frameworks and mental models to help people think about problems in new ways so they can work with them and solve them. So, like with Day Optimizer, I've created um, certain patterns, like uh, uh, the concept of done today versus done forever. Right, done today allows me to check it off my list, but it reappears tomorrow on my list. Done forever means it's it's done forever, right? Um, so that's a concept that people can then use to manage their time, right? So, say like you're doing like uh, um, you're doing it on paper, right? One scratch for done today, two scratches for done forever. And the next day you copy over everything that doesn't, you didn't cross over at all, or you only crossed off once you copy over that your next list. The benefit of the done today, done forever concept is it gives you the dopamine rush for the tasks that you worked on today, but didn't finish. Cause when people have a task manager, like How most task managers work: once you check that off, it's gone. You don't you don't get it back. You don't get to do it again tomorrow. Um, You know, so like if you've got a a task of build the website, and it's going to take you three or four days to build it, you just you don't check it off, and and then it's distracting. Every time you pull up the list, it's there, it's unchecked off. You don't really feel that sense of accomplishment. You look at the end of the day, what did I do? Oh, I only crossed off three things off my list. If you have a done today, done forever concept, now I can actually start crossing off more things. Again, give me the dopamine rush, which will increase my focus and motivation, right? And allow me to look back at my day and see what I actually did. So it increases my sense of accomplishment. So all these sort of things. So that's a concept, right? That now I've created, now I've introduced to you and your audience that they can go use to manage their time better. But I do that in many different ways. I've done that in, I'm actually developing a whole pattern language for decision-making called Lean Decisions that helps people. Um, make better decisions by understanding the different types of decisions they make. Um, But yeah, so my superpower is creating mental models that help people interact with the world better.
0: It's really powerful there. Thank, Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's super, super valuable. I feel like by being able to hone in on the done today versus done forever, right? You're able to prioritize your big rocks over your small rocks, you know, you remove emotions out of decisions, not just, you know, running a big brand as an entrepreneur, but also in your life as well, right? And I feel like it would make you just more efficient and yeah. you definitely feel like you accomplish more. You feel more fulfilled almost.
1: Exactly. And and, and it does like a lot of times what what people will do and, and this goes, we can combine this with the uh, red, yellow, green light thing, right? It's a lot of times what people will do with their tasks is they'll procrastinate by doing the smaller tasks because it gives them that, that rush of accomplishment because they get to cross it off or they say, Oh, I only have an hour. I can't actually really make any progress on this, but they actually can. Just, or they say like, I can't actually finish it, but they could make progress, but because they're not going to be able to check it off. It doesn't, Uh, dopamine acts as a, as a motivator to drive us to it. And then it also acts as a reward system. So if you, if you don't ever get the chance to cross it off, it's also not activating as the driver either. So the idea that like, you know, I can have this yellow light, like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to perform at my top productivity today, but I'm still going to like, you know, go and put in the time to do this task. So it's a, it's a yellow light day. And then other days I'm just going to rock it during that time. You know, I'm going to put in my hour, two hours, and I'm going to green light it. But, like, even if you just yellow light it, you still get to cross it off. The only time you don't is if you don't do it at all, if you, if you red light it. If you, if you red light it, then, sorry, you didn't do it. You can't cross it off. not get that satisfaction. But by having that gradation that allows us to deal with the fluctuations in our energy and our focus and all that, and it actually helps – keep building that energy and motivation because as you do things you want to do more of them so it's actually this kind of neat psychological hack
0: to do that that's that's really neat it's just fascinating talking about the mind and like how limitless you your everyone's potential is you know what i mean it, it's crazy to think about
1: oh yeah yeah human humans the 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 possibilities of humans are incredible
0: question for you sir for hobbies things that you know take your mind off today maybe you're done today because you're so well-dressed there would uh swing dancing be one of those uh activities
1: Uh, yes i do swing dancing so that's one of my uh ways to kind of uh get exercise socialization reduce my uh stress uh, reset my body, um, stimulate my brain. Everything
0: is swing dance. Is that kind of like a combination of different dances? Like I know, like I'm not a dancer per se, right? Just explain to me, like, what swing dancing is.
1: So swing uh, swing dance is a family of dances. Um, technically, you could say probably swing dance is anything danced to swing music. Um, but there's, there's a family of dances that um, started in the 1920s and they kind of evolved in the 30s and 40s and then took different branches, right? So the branch that I do um, is often just called swing dancing and then has like the different sub dances in there of like Lindy Hop, Charleston, um, Balboa, um, East Coast Swing, you'll hear people call it East Coast Swing um, or Six Count Lindy Hop. Um, so that's one of the branches. Another branch went off and created something called West Coast Swing, um, which is a whole different type of swing, um, in, in the way it's danced. But, um, but the, the branch I dance are the ones that try to replicate the original dancers from the 20s, 30s, and 40s in the way they danced in the ballrooms that were, um, uh, in Harlem for uh, Lindy Hop and then over in. Baboa, uh, california for babboa um, but it was also all over the country there's tons of that and then there's also um uh um, branches that have continued so that there's a in dc there's a branch called hand dancing uh which is very similar to um it's basically swing dancing but it's not People often don't put it under the swing umbrella, but like I could go and probably dance with someone who does hand dancing, and we'd be fine dancing together. We use the same skill set. Whereas if I would try to dance West Coast swing, I'd be lost.
0: Takes two to tango, as they say. Yes, but it's fascinating for me. I've I've always been curious. I've always wanted to you know travel the world and like see other cultures. Right, you know learn different languages and like dancing especially because I'm actually half Cuban. So oh, like I've always okay. wanted to like, you know, learn how to like salsa, like learn how to tangle. I think that'd be pretty cool.
1: And the, the value of, of dancing uh, first, there's just some innate values in that um, it is it's cardio. So it's exercise for you at the same time as being social and it is very intellectual because especially whether you're a lead or a follow, like you, it changes the way your brain works and it really have, you actually have to use your brain when you're doing the dance. But then there's this additional value. Yeah. As a traveler is that I can go to almost any city in the world and look up city named Lindy hop and find dancers to go dance with. And I've danced in dozens of different cities around the world um, with dancers everywhere. And um, and, and then it had just random connections. I remember a couple of years ago um, me and my girlfriend were in Rome and I decided to go swing dancing um, and looked it up and there, you know, we were only in Rome for a couple of nights. And so the, there wasn't any like great dancing that night, but there was dancing at this cafe. So I went to this dancing cafe and they were just dancing out on the sidewalk and met a bunch of people and danced with them. And then, um, uh, later that year, I was in Berlin at new year 's uh, sylvester and um, and yeah, this guy comes up to me like hey how 's it going?" Yeah, yeah, we met, but down in Rome <laughs> it's like you know you just get these random connections and, and you get these wonderful things where um, uh, this wonderful um, uh, friend of mine Corbinian um, that I met that we met in um, Vienna, uh, we met at a swing dance and You know, he wasn't working at the time. It's like, oh, you're touristing. You're coming to Vienna. Um, Let me give you a tour of Vienna tomorrow. We'll start tomorrow at 10 a.m. at the, you know, we'll get breakfast and we'll go from there. We did like this, I don't know what it was, an eight or 10 hour tour of Vienna from someone who loves history. Like amazing, like amazing, generous soul and amazing experience. And that all came from dance and being able to like go to any city. We just, we just wandered up to like, we just looked up what were the dances going on, went out to this, uh, um, uh, this big plaza where people were dancing, met people and discovered all these new friends.
0: That's awesome. Coolest place you ever traveled to? (sighs) Coolest place. Um, Okay. Put it this way. How about top three coolest places you've ever been to?
1: Um, Oh, that's hard to say. I mean, I I, I love Berlin. So Berlin is definitely one of my top cities in the world that I love. Um, It's kind of interesting because I think when you ask the coolest place where you've been to, it also is not just the place, but where I was um, in my life at the time. So the first time I went to New Orleans was an incredibly magical experience. Right. Um, it was in the, um, early nineties. Um, there was this wonderful creative community over in the Marigny at the time. I mean, there still is, but at that time it was, um, where a lot of like more of the alternative new Orleans was happening. Um, and I went down around Mardi Gras and just got like accepted into this new Orleans culture in a way that I could never have imagined. Um, so for me, it was both the city and where I was at the time in my life, right? Um, or there might be things like, again, going back to Ridiculous city tours. Um, years ago, me and my partner at the time uh, were doing a trip around Europe and went to Prague, where a friend of mine, I actually from New Orleans, we'll connect this from New Orleans, was living, and he also history buff. Said okay, you're you're visiting Prague. I need to show you around. This was in the um, early 2000s, um, and so Prague was still like you know um, hadn't like totally transformed into like the modern city, but like was well on its way. Um, but yeah, he took us. We start at the outskirts of the city with this myth of um, this goddess. I think it was a goddess committing suicide off this cliff or something. I forget the exact story now. And he took us on this 12 hour tour circling down all the way down into the center of Prague.
0: Oh, shit.
1: Um, it was amazing. 12, 12 hours, 12 hours, 12 <sighs> hours. Yeah. And he was so rich and full he was a history buff. He had been living in Prague as an expat for a couple of years. He was so full of like these wonderful stories that he told us. It was just amazing.
0: That's fascinating because at the end of the day, I feel like one of the big questions we want to ask ourselves, right? Is, you know, what's our purpose? Why are we here? This guy, he just, maybe he didn't want to be, you know, a billionaire it wasn't about money brand. it was about enriching people's lives and I think oh yeah the whole thing i think really the way you spoke it with just such passion and just like wow like it put me there too because i could just imagine the views that you have but it's not just like oh the common tourist places that everybody goes to it's like you get to like the creme de la creme of Prague you get to go to all the places that nobody knows about all you know like the back end tours and see nature and just see a city and a world in such a different way I think that's just fascinating
1: yeah I think that that's critical I think it's um, to tie a little bit back to the entrepreneurship um, so I was listening to a podcast um, yesterday um uh, and they were talking about the uh, remote developers. My friend Victor, actually, I met uh, met at this conference called MicroConf, um, and he travels all over to different countries. Um, But he specializes in helping people find outsourcing people, right? Okay.
0: Um,
1: And on the podcast, he was talking about one of the things that people often do is they'll have remote developers come visit them. And they don't really understand the value of going and visiting the remote developers. And it was interesting because he said one of the important things, one of the key things about visiting a remote developer is they get to show you their city, what they love, right? If you come visit them, yeah, you're connecting and stuff like that, but you don't connect on the same level as when you go get to this. I mean, ideally you visit each other, but if you don't go visit them, like if you visit them they they can they'll take you to their favorite pub they'll t- you know you get to have this experience in the city that's unlike any other right and i think that is when you have personal connections in cities when you're traveling that creates these whole new experiences that you wouldn't otherwise normally get
0: i think too it's fascinating also with entrepreneurship because when you when you really develop your brand the right way and you scale it the right way, you can, you can automate things, obviously, you know, you can put the systems in place, you have the ability to travel and spread your message throughout. But I think it's just fascinating too, because even if you're going on a business trip, there's so many opportunities to meet people and connect and, you know, share just like a positive energy. And, you know, even if, maybe your business trip the first day, you know, you have jet lag and, you know, somebody like lost your bag and like carry out or something like that at the airport. You know, you still have the opportunity to network with people make somebody's day. Yeah, okay. totally. Totally. What do you think in your opinion, Trevor, what's one thing people misunderstand about you most?
1: About me. Um, I'm going to go with like something again, I heard on another podcast that we're talking about this. Um, I think sometimes when people like look at you from the outside, and I think this applies to, to many people, especially people who are, um, have any type of success. You don't have to have like grants. I don't, I've not been wildly successful, but I've been moderately successful. Um, is that people will forget that everyone has their own struggles. Everyone has their own challenges that they're facing, their their own uh, hills to climb, things to learn, um, their own weaknesses. And I think too often we focus on our own internal, we know our own weaknesses, we know our own struggles. And we look at someone else and we don't know theirs. So we assume they have none. And therefore, we don't feel as good we, we feel less than them in some way, or we judge them in some way because we don't know what they're going through. and I don't think you, you can never really know what someone's going through unless you are that person um, and And even as um, the um, as you become more successful, it's not like you lose struggles. Yeah. There's certain base things in your life become better, but like you still have challenges. You still have struggles. You still have your weaknesses. A lot of times the challenges change, right? Um, The podcast I was listening to was um, about, uh, it was Rob Walling and I forget the other guy talking about the, the six stages of software a service growth. Like what are the, as you're growing a business, you know, up to, you know, X number of million dollars a year. And I think the key thing that they were saying, it's like, it's not like you don't have challenges. It's that the challenges change, but people will view, oh, like, because, you know, like say I had a um, uh, a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars, but say I had a million dollars. Um, someone might go, oh, you have a million dollars. You have, you have everything you need. You don't have any problems. Well, that's not true. It just means you have different problems. You might not have money problems, or you might have you, like, there's people who, are, who have a million dollars or who are worth a million dollars, who like are, are super struggling financially because it's all in illiquid assets or what, whatnot. We often don't understand other people's struggles. Um, so I would say that, yeah, like um, if someone's looking at me, they're not necessarily seeing my own internal struggles.
0: seeing people more seeing them more as a person it sounds it sounds so generic it sounds so cliche but being an being an entrepreneur like yourself you know me you know doing consulting right it feels like you you get lost in the dollar signs and you get lost in the numbers and what's next and what's next but at the end of the day i think it's really powerful i think it hones in on the fact that we're, at the end of the day, we're just all people. You know what I mean? And we do have our own struggles and it's, it's tough sometimes to, you know, take emotions out of business decisions, but at the end of the day, it's, it's necessary. But at the same time, what we do doesn't define us. You know, it's who we are that helps us in, you know, what we do.
1: And I, I think right now is a great, this time we're in particularly with the black lives matter movement and stuff like that. Um, but in general also the challenges we face as a nation and many nations around the, uh, uh, around the world are facing this right now where um, things are becoming more divided, <laughs> more ideology, ideological. Um, I think one of the great skills we need to learn as a society is that practice of empathy, that practice of putting oneself in someone else's shoes and saying, yes, they have challenges too and understanding that yeah, sometimes their challenges actually are greater than ours on an objective basis. That doesn't mean ours hurt less. Like we don't feel the pain. I mean, there's the, the, the classic Twitter hashtag that started to become popular. I don't know how many years ago, the, the first world problems. Right. It's like, right, right. Cause you have a first world problem. Doesn't mean it's not a problem, but there, there, there's at least by using that hashtag is the awareness of, okay, it's not really the same problem as someone who's, you know, in a war-torn zone in another country, or or starving, or or, or something like that. Um, and I think right now um, is a great time where we're seeing um, the struggles that lots of people of color in our country uh, suffer from. And I think learning how to be empathetic, but not necessarily um, saying like blocking our own emotions, not saying like okay like their life is harder than mine. Like sometimes people I think will become resentful if they feel like I can't recognize my own pain when I recognize someone else has more pain. Um, And I think it's fine to recognize both. It's fine to say, yes, they are suffering in these other ways. Yes, I suffer as well, but they also suffer and they are suffering in these additional ways that I'm not suffering you know, and sometimes, yeah, they've got benefits. I don't, and I've got benefits. I mean, we all have different things that we bring to the table. Um, and, uh, and we all have our own, uh, um, set of cards we're dealt in life that we need to play out. But I think the more that we can understand the position other people are being in and helping each other navigate that, the better, we will be as individuals and the better we will be as a society.
0: I agree with that a hundred percent. I think empathy, but I think in a business standpoint also, it deals a lot with like emotional intelligence, right? Having like being vulnerable almost to go first. Like if you're having a critical conversation with somebody, you know, it's like, Hey, look, you know, what's up, what's going on? If you have a personal problem, like if you don't want to open up, that's cool. You know, this is what's going on in my life. You know, you give, you open up and they mirror you because you're setting the example. Yeah. and I think being empathetic, Trevor, I think it really, really hit it where it's, you give people a platform to voice the thoughts that are in their mind. Cause you can't see thoughts. And I think that's where I think fear and pain and resentment a lot of this negativity comes from is that you can't you can't put that out in the open but i think if even if you don't agree with their view or their stance on something you put you put the ball in their court almost and you're like hey look you you have an open floor right here yeah say what you got to say and then You know, we'll talk about it. Whether we agree or disagree, it's better to disagree upon something and get it out than just like harbor that in and it gets lashed out like a hundredfold in a bad way.
1: Well, and also because I think a lot of times disagreements are done based on surface understandings. Like you said, if you're holding everything in, I can only see the little tiny bit that you're letting out. I can't actually... Um, so I think it is, um, important to forget the rest of the saying, but like seek first to understand, Yeah, seek first to understand other people, ask the questions, like let them surface so you can go deeper and understand them better. And then you might, you'll probably discover points of connection that you didn't know were there. And that if you were just looking at the surface didn't exist. Like, so it's, I think it's important to, yeah, seek first to understand. And, and you're right. One, one of the, I think the, the opening up and being vulnerable first, that's a strategy for doing that, but the key there, or it's a tactic for doing that, but the, the key overall strategy is to seek
0: to understand others.
1: Um,
0: seek to understand, not be understood. I think that's uh, Bruce Lee, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Why? A lot there's a lot of wisdom i think socrates had another saying i've been on like a quote binge lately the case uh some intellectual i meet when i travel the world someday like starts like firing off quotes i'm like all right i'll be that guy to challenge him but i think socrates mm-hmm. mentioned a quote in terms of intelligence he said the smartest thing any man can do is be openly foolish and the dumbest thing any man can do is be openly smart coming out of a situation where I think how I interpret that it's more coming to every situation with an empty cup. It's like, you don't know anything, but seek to, as you mentioned, you know, seek to understand it and being able to just be curious and just open minded to ask those questions. Yeah,
1: totally. Yeah.
0: But any, uh, we we talked a lot about it here, Trevor. A lot. We really got deep about entrepreneurship philosophy. You know, we got into your you know, your vision. You know, your purpose. Just wanted to ask you just real quick, like, what does the legacy look like for Trevor beer? Like, what are your goals in the next three to five years?
1: <laughs> Interesting. You asked about legacy in the next three to five years. Um, I will answer those in that order uh, uh, so my legacy um and i may not achieve it right so several years ago i wrote this article what is your 100 year goal and the point of a hundred year goal is or point of a hundred year goal at my age um is that i will not be alive in 100 years um and so then the question is like how do you, how can you have a goal 100 year goal and the, the answer is that you should be thinking about how can you continue to have an ongoing impact in the world after you're dead. Um, And to me, that is what we traditionally think of as a legacy. Um, And so my um, one line for that is that I want to be the Dale Carnegie of decision-making. And we can go deeper into what that means, but that ties into my uh, pattern language for decision-making. And I've got a lot of thoughts around how to help people make better decisions. Moving into the shorter term, in the next um, three to five years, I'm focused more on helping people with more immediate needs that um, I can build businesses on. So, with Day Optimizer, I'm helping with time management, uh, specifically helping people use daily schedules to kind of beat procrastination, increase focus, uh, balance their work-life balance, you know, improve their work-life balance. Um, I've got some additional tools after that. Um, there's a great um, uh, decision-making tool called a paired comparison that helps you, it's not really a decision-making tool, it's a, it's a prioritization tool. It really helps surface hidden uh, priorities that you have that you didn't know you have. Um, and uh, I actually wanna build that out. I've got some, some innovations on that. I wanna build that out as a tool for people to use. Um, there's some going back to the understanding business. There were some structural reasons. That was actually my first idea um, when I pivoted over into doing software again, but there were some structural reasons why that can't be my, my first product. So that's why day optimizer has been my product. Um, But then moving beyond like the five years, that's when I start like, you know, continuing to build out my um, pattern language and eventually write the book and kind of take it from there.
0: That's that's pretty kick ass, I'm not gonna lie, Trevor. You got a line in the pipeline there, line the works. there uh anybody that you know you wanted to reach out to, anybody you wanted to give a shout out to, or maybe, you know, how can people get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so uh people can reach me um at uh Trevor at dayoptimizer dot com. Um that's optimizer with a Z right now. I Need to redirect the s one um if you're in the uk it will be with a z right now um and, or at uh fast fedora on twitter um they can also reach me at fastfedora.com and then if someone wants to try out the optimizer you know we've got a seven-day trial for them to go through and learn how to plan their day and that's at uh, dayoptimizer.com.
0: right on trevor right on trevor well This has been a value-packed episode. This is Steve Zekas, the Sinatra Suave, host of Dominate the Deal, signing off for right now. We really got deep into entrepreneurship, philosophy, you know, what you stand for, you know, personally, you know, who you are and how you build relationships with people and the systems that you've created as a result of the success in your journey as an entrepreneur um, to help people maximize their day and manage your time effectively it's been a pleasure trevor i definitely want to bring you on again because there's definitely some things we left on unfinished but it's been a pleasure man thank you for coming on honestly
1: yeah it's been totally great it was an amazing conversation thank you so much steve
0: my pleasure